If you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 11. When uh, Chris asked me to preach, there's some debate over whether he asked me to do 1 Samuel 11 and or 12 or and 12. So I'm going to mention 12 this morning. It is Samuel's farewell address. You would do well to read it. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 11. This is what happens when you get the, uh, the old youth pastor. You get small chunks. We're going to read the passage, 1 Samuel 11, and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to ask three uh, pretty basic questions uh, to get us um, where hopefully uh, we need to be this morning. 1 Samuel 11, verse 1. The Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the manner in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Therefore, we will give ourselves up to you. In other words, to the Ammonites. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would have mercy on me this morning, a sinner. 
And I pray that you would have mercy on us as a church to this congregation so that your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would illuminate your gospel so that we would see the goodness of you in the midst of reasons for fear. And when we are in great need, we ask you this morning to do that for us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I want to answer three questions this morning as we look at this passage. The first one being, what's going on here? We need to get our heads around what is going on in 1 Samuel 11. Second question is, is we're going to answer, where do we see ourselves? And then the third, where do we see the person and work of Christ? So what is going on, going on, going on in this story? Well, Nahesh the Ammonite approaches the men of Israel with obvious violent intentions. We know it's violence. We know there's a reason for them to fear because they immediately want to make a a treaty with these pagans, right? They want to make a treaty to avoid any kind of conflict. They're they're afraid of this enemy. Nahesh says, okay, deal. We will make a covenant with you, but on this condition... I've been watching, uh, we've been, me and my wife have been watching uh, Daredevil on Netflix this past week. Have you seen that? Not the movie, it was awful, but the TV show. And, and the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking about that, because there, there seems to be a theme in Daredevil of um, a lot of very Christian themes that are intentional also, if you don't know this. But one of them seems to be a lot of dealing with evil and evil dealing with good, and between them being blood. And incredible violence. So he says, I, we, we will do this covenant, but we will gouge out your eyes. That's the condition that we will do this. We will remove your eyes. And the obvious thing is, is if you don't, they don't have their eyes, the men don't have their eyes, they can't fight there would be in total subjection. This past week, I, I was supposed to get glasses about three months ago after going to the doctor. If you don't know this, when they tell you to get glasses when you go to the eye doctor, you should do it right then and there and not wait a, three months like I did. And so I look up at my computer screen at work and I can't, I mean, I couldn't hardly read anything that, that day. They said my eyes were just so bad and they were straining for so long that they just were giving, I, I, I needed to get glasses. And I had to confess my sins to the eye doctor and go back. It's a completely debilitating condition for the Israelites. They were terrified, but it sounded probably better than death. And so they said, look, give us seven days. If we can't find anyone to save us from you, we're pretty upfront about this. If we can't find anyone to save us, we'll do this. We'll meet this condition. So the word gets out. It gets to Saul and uh, or Saul's area of town, I guess, or the you know, Israel and um, people start weeping over this. And Saul's like, what's going on? Why, why is everyone weeping? And they, they explain to him. And what happens next is the Spirit of the Lord rushes onto Saul. And it says his anger is greatly kindled. A very powerful picture there. The Spirit of God rushing onto him 
and his anger over this situation. So he takes a yoke of oxen, which he'd been plowing in the fields with oxen. So the assumption is, is he's probably taking maybe his own oxen, but regardless, it would have been something of great value. He takes something of great value to him. He kills it, and then he sends all the pieces throughout. And he says, men of Israel, if you do not come help us to defeat these Ammonites, may the same thing be done to your oxen. And so Israel comes all of Israel, all of Judah, 330,000 men come and they, they, they go up and, uh, you know, the, 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 the men of uh, Jabesh Gilead say, yeah, we'll deliver ourselves over to you tomorrow is a trick. Israel comes and then defeats them very soundly to the point where no two were together, even the ones that were scattered. And then um, everyone's really excited Except for there's some people that are, you know, because some people were doubting whether Saul should be king. And so some people went to Samuel and said, hey, Samuel, these people who didn't think Saul could handle this, this whole kingship thing, that he shouldn't lead us, let's put them to death. And Saul's reaction is, no, no, no. Today, salvation has come to Israel. That will not happen today. And so they went away and they renewed the kingdom and they rejoiced greatly. So to sum up, an enemy threatens God's people. They are tempted to make peace with this enemy. They hope for someone to save them. And then the king does save them in dramatic fashion. Now we have two more questions to answer. Where do we see ourselves and where do we see the person and work of Christ? Now, why those questions? Because why not the question which, in all honesty, I am tempted to ask, how can I be more like this Saul. How can I be more like this and not like them? How can I have more courage? Why not a sermon on getting our leaders in the church here to shape up? Why not a sermon on how our country needs someone who will take the bull or oxen by the horns and will defend us against our flesh and blood enemies? Keep us safe. Save us from those who would Threaten to harm us. Well, here's why. Those aren't the right questions, I don't think. When I was, um, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, I ran into a book. It's called Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics by Graham Goldsworthy. And uh, I read, there was one page in that book that just really kind of transformed the way I approached stories like this. The hermeneutical, or the way we, the question to ask when when we read the scriptures, the hermeneutical question about the whole Bible correlates with the question, what do you think of Christ? If Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, then he must mediate the meaning of the whole of God's communication to us. Our understanding of this mediatorial role comes from the unpacking by the New Testament writers of the gospel event and how it works for our salvation. This raises the question of the significance of all of the parts of Scripture, so even these parts, that are not explicitly expositions of the gospel. We can say that while not all Scripture is the gospel, all Scripture is related to the gospel that has with it as its center. So think of the gospel as the hub and everything else is moving around the hub. He goes on to say, this is the money quote. The Bible makes a very radical idea inescapable. 
Not only is the gospel the interpretive norm for the whole Bible, but there is an important sense in which Jesus Christ is the mediator of the meaning of everything that exists. So in other words, the gospel of what God has done in Jesus is the interpretive lens through which we look at everything that exists, including this story of Saul's defeat of the Ammonites. And then I found another quote right next to this. Never noticed it. I mean, I underlined it, but I don't remember ever reading it. So it's long ago. The gospel centers on what God did for us in the incarnate Christ in order to save us from sin, the devil, and death. So, where do we see ourselves in this passage? The Israelites were afraid of and needed saving from the Ammonites. I think the question to ask is, is what are we afraid of and what do we need saving from? And I think Goldsworthy gave, gave us three things that are very helpful here. First, our fear of and need to be saved from sin. Um, we, we tend to think, th- th- this may seem obvious, right? I mean, here we are in a church, Christian church, in which we confess our sins. We just got through doing this. But oftentimes we are tempted to not see sin as our biggest problem, but the things in front of us. But, but maybe, quite possibly maybe, your sin has overwhelmed you. You've probably had this happen before. It's possible it's an addiction. Or maybe it's like me. You will be somewhere or see something on social media and you will hear your sin that is actually coming out of the mouth of someone else, probably another parent to their children. And you're like, man, I cannot believe I ever said that. Or I, I know I have said that maybe in the last 15, 20 minutes. And you, you, you hear, you know, your, the, the actions of someone else become like a mirror in which you can see your own sin and your own need to be saved from it. Regardless, you know something is very wrong for you. It's true for believers and unbelievers. It feels like an enemy is encamped around you. And sometimes you feel like I'm either tempted to make peace with that enemy or I've already done so. So the first thing is our fear of and need to be saved from sin. Second, our need our fear of and need to be saved from the devil. About a month ago, my wife went to a birthday party with a friend from out of town. And while they were gone, uh, my kids were in bed and it was dark. And I was hanging out with my good friend Netflix. And I watched a documentary on the Amityville Horror House. Some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. The rest of you will understand why I just wanted to be held about 30 minutes into it. Um, it was it. It was probably a hoax, but that first thirty minutes was pretty scary. When they talk about all that was reported and everything, and the supposed demonic activity, and 
you know, the whole time I'm watching this documentary, there's kind of two sides going here. Some that believe that there was something supernatural or demonic going on. And then there were other people who were, they were just complete skeptics who saw there was no possibility because this does not exist. Now, it is pretty typical in our culture to think that the devil and thoughts about the devil and a fear of the devil and demons, it's kind of hackneyed. It's kind of backwards. But I think Goldsworthy, Goldsworthy is right. I mean, the, the scriptures are very clear that the devil is real. The Israelites fought flesh and blood enemies. That's what they were afraid of. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6.12, he says, he makes it clear. On this side of the cross, we fight a spiritual enemy. Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So maybe you're afraid. I mean, it's possible. You're afraid. Or you've been in a place or you will be where you're afraid of what the devil can and will do. Maybe to you, maybe to your family, maybe to a friend. But we know that fear, even if it's a Job-like fear who did not know what was going on, and now we see that story and we're worried that maybe the devil is playing havoc with our lives. Third, so our fear of and need to be saved from sin, our fear of and need to be saved from the devil... And last, our fear of and need to be saved from death. I mean, this is probably what they feared the most, which is why the Ammonites were willing to make that treaty, right? I'd rather go through life maybe humiliated and have lost my eyes and my ability to see and to do work, to do all those things that give me dignity, but at least I have my life. At least I can hear the sound, the vo- the sound of my wife's voice and my kids' voices. I can hear my community around me. So they feared death. And this is, this is us too. I mean, we, we understand this. This is the great fear that we all have. Maybe it's because I've, I've lost my two parents over the last couple of years. But the Psalms have kind of been a place that I've gone to a lot lately. The psalmist is always asking the great question, you know, what man can live and never see death? But when it happens to you and or it's it feels like it's going to happen to you or you're watching it happen to you, it starts happening not in theoretical terms, but it starts happening like in HD surround sound. Kind of like what the psalmist says when he says the cords of death encompass me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. I mean, some of us in this room, we get that, don't we? Feels like death is either getting closer or it has bumped up against us. And we've kind of felt its hot breath on, our, on the back of our neck. Either because of someone, because we've lost someone we love or maybe ourselves. So, we see ourselves in the fear and in the need of Israel. God's people with these enemies encamped around them, threatening them. 
Where do we see the person and work of Christ? The Israelites sought someone to save them when faced with their enemy. That enemy being the Ammonites. How much more does Christ save us from death, the devil, and our sin? So the first place we can see, we can kind of look at this story and go, Christ, our King, comes to us and saves us from death. I'm going to work backwards this time. Christ saves us from death. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to Paul. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. So that salvation of from death comes through resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And then look at what he says next. He says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we know that feeling of death being an enemy because it comes and it takes away dignity. It takes away um, our ability to think clearly. There is a a subjection that happens when it comes to us. But the promise of the gospel of what God has done in Jesus through the cross and his resurrection is that now death is. Is being defeated. And it's being defeated kind of in two ways. I mean, there's there's a a not yet in that death will be defeated in our resurrection. That even though we will die physically one day, that we will be raised with Christ. Christ is the first fruits, as Paul said, of the resurrection. And then we will be raised also. But But there's an already sense to it. Because now when our loved ones or when we face death, we face death knowing that this is coming. We have hope in the midst of it. It no longer looks like an enemy that is actually going to destroy us in the valley of the shadow of death. We realize that the valley of shadow of death now actually ends in the presence of the king who has saved us. So Christ saves us from death. And from our fear of death. Christ saves us also from the devil. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. I love that. This God of peace is going to do violence to the devil. Who threatens, who prowls around and wants to harm us. He wants to harm his people. First John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared. If, if this doesn't awake us to the reality, and not to the, uh, the horns and pitchfork laughable version of the devil, if this doesn't awaken us to the reality of his presence and his threat, First John I don't know what will. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
That's why he came. To destroy what Satan started in the garden. And thought he was finishing on the cross. And when he thought he'd finished it, he actually ushered in his own defeat. Last, Christ saves us from our sin. Let me sum this up quickly. For the unbeliever who has been overwhelmed by their sin, there is a king who has defeated this enemy on the cross where he was punished for our sin. While we were enemies. So even if we have made peace with our enemy sin, we, we actually have one who, while we were enemies, while you are an enemy, has died for us and looks upon us with gracious eyes. And when you place your hope for salvation from your sin in his work, you get credited with his righteousness. And this is for the believer, too. Because our fear of, this is how this works. Something difficult happens in your life. Something awful, some suffering comes into your life that you can't see a way out of. And your first question is my first question. What have I done that God is punishing me for right now? And you start running through that list. You start, I mean, it's like we... We become schizophrenic and we have Job's counselors talking to ourselves in our heads. And, and, and we're, we're going, well, we must have done something because that's why certainly this suffering could not have happened for any other reason. Maybe God is mad at me for this and you stop believing. And I stop believing that God has saved us to be sons and daughters. We start feeling like the enemy at that moment. You feel separated from God. I love how Saul goes in his, in his rage and the spirit of, in the power of the Spirit of God, and he rallies all of these men. And it's like he's taking everything he can. It's like he's grabbing everything he can and going after those who would threaten God's people. And so for those of us who fear and need salvation from our sin, because maybe from a wrong view of how God looks at our sin, maybe is unforgiven, Maybe we need to kind of look at that and be reminded of Romans 8.28. That for all of us who are called, all those who love God, are called according to His purpose. All things are being gathered by the King to work for our good. And that passage is actually right between... um, It's right between... When Paul says, For I consider that the present sufferings aren't worth comparing. So he's talking about suffering. All these sufferings that you Romans are are possibly experiencing are not worth comparing to uh, to the glory that will, will be revealed to you. And then it's it's right then it's right after that that Paul is saying neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And maybe that's what we need. That's the fears that we're separated, and we need to be reminded of that. I mean, even here in this passage, I think we get a good look at God's, uh, at the king's great graciousness. Look at 12 and 13. These men want these people to be killed who did not want Saul, who doubted Saul should be king. And so these men say, let's kill the ones who said that. And Saul the king, in his graciousness, spirit of God is on him. And in his graciousness, he says, no, no, today salvation has come. To Israel. 
You can, so many echoes of the stories of Jesus, of him, of people bringing people to Jesus and Jesus just, just pouring out grace on them. The woman at the well, the adulterous woman, even the disciples in there, and then Jesus from the cross saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Last night I was looking for a quote from John Calvin about that I had read before. I could not remember what it was exactly, and I ran into something else. I want to read this extended quote. We're going to close with this. It'll take me just a couple minutes, but I promise you, I do not like doing an extended quote like this. But I promise you, you will understand why. It follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in this same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, darkness turned into light, fear reassured. Debt canceled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, hell transfixed, death is dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. For all these things which were to be the weapons of the devil in his battle against us and the sting of death. To pierce us are turned for us into exercises. They are gathered together in exercises which we can turn to our profit. If we are able to boast with the apostles saying, Oh hell, where is thy victory? Oh death, where is thy sting? It is because by the Spirit of Christ promised to the elect... We, no long, we live no longer, but Christ lives in us. And we are by the same Spirit seated among those who are in heaven. <clears throat> we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient amongst evils, living in death. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture. Truly, to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in Him and are offered to us by Him from God the Father. In other words, all of Scripture has been given to show us that our fears of sin, the devil and death, are and our need to be saved from them have been realized in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, who took our sin upon Himself to defeat sin, who surrendered to the devil to defeat the devil, and Jesus who died to defeat death. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this story. This, this kind of reverse echo of our own fears and needs as we walk through this world and go about our lives. And yet we hear the sound of your grace in this story and your mercy to sinners that you meet us in our fears and you defeat the enemies that we are afraid of. 
Father, help us to remember this as we, as fear creeps up and as our need for salvation and a Savior creeps up. Father, we love you and we ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.